Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Are you looking for a good book focused purely on saws? Perhaps you're a fan of Chris, just want to complete your collection. Or maybe, just maybe, you've recently come into a very large sum of money and have no idea what else to buy with it. Regardless of the reason you set out to buy the book, well, the book made of solid gold. Handsaw Essentials is a good book, but it's one that I struggle to recommend. Before I talk about the book, I'll apologize about the gap between podcasts, but I hope that after listening to today's episode, you'll appreciate that rereading this book and putting it together took quite a bit of time. I wanted to make this a decent review because of all the questions I get from listeners. In fact, out of all the questions I get from them, I think that the question, do you think I should buy Hansel Essentials, and is it worth the price, is possibly one of the most common. On the shop side, I finally finished my cell phone charging station. It's really a set of, you know, I guess four shelves attached to a larger area for an iPad holder. And I thought it'd be fun to make this with a back that conceals the wiring and a pseudo drawer in the front that hides the cables. As the cables are routed in and out from the back, this is a three-sided drawer. There's no bottom or back, and it's essentially just there to hide the wiring. The irony is not lost on me that I made a very nice station to charge power tools with hand tools. Into the book. The book is expensive. Regardless of whether you buy the positively bargain second-hand one, described as collectible on Amazon for $199, or whether you go all-in and find a copy for $1,000 in mint condition. Wherever you find it, you're not finding this book cheap anywhere. Well, not anywhere that I looked. I was pretty happy that I got a copy of it for $150, and it took a lot of looking and waiting to even make that price possible. And that price is circa 2019. Frankly, it's a pretty insane premium on a book that, when published, cost only $35. And if you can get it for anything under $60, I'd consider it a good book. Unfortunately, if I contrast the book against the value, current collectability prices this book way out of the league of most people and straight into the collector's bracket. Think of it as the Stanley number two of books, if you will. Maybe even the Stanley number one. The book is titled Handsaw Essentials, and if that seems familiar, no doubt you've heard of or own a copy of Hand Plane Essentials. It's a good book to compare it to. The format is similar, and the look and feel is very much the same. In fact, in my head, I divide Chris Schwarz's literary career into two very distinct phases. The first is what I call the pop woodwork books, and the second is Chris comes into his own books. Let's take the second category first. The Chris comes into his own books. An example I loved was Ingenious Mechanics. But recently, the free book The Anarchist's Workbench is a cheaper way to access this type of book, if you don't own some of his books already. For me, the hallmarks of these books are, one, a love of history and a willingness to detour into the history of a subject in a non-superficial manner. Two, personal accounts and anecdotes that will provide a golden thread and they pull the book together as Chris takes us on a journey. Three, good writing and cohesion of the entire book in a way that makes it feel like it was conceived as a book from initial conception 
all the way through to final publication. And finally, a very entertaining voice and style. If I compare and contrast this to the pop woodworking books, the same entertaining voice and style is there, and there are some personal anecdotes and accounts, but they're different in a way because they don't really tie the narrative together as a golden thread. Rather, they help with the entertainment of each section or chapter, independently of the whole book. There are smatterings of history, but no grand detours. The writing's good, but the books feel as if they were compiled as a set of magazine articles that were edited in a way that was not too jarring to read from cover to cover. However, each piece really feels like a standalone article, shoehorned into a book. So the book doesn't feel as if it was conceived and executed as a book. Generally, they feel like that collection of your grandfather's favourite magazine clippings, filed in some logical order. And there tends to be the inclusion of projects. Like the pop woodworking God decreed, thou shall not publish books without projects. Don't get me wrong, the pop woodworking books are not bad books. But if you're more familiar with Chris's recent work, you'll be disappointed to a degree. And Handsaw Essentials is a pop woodworking book. Let's get that out of the way from the start. I don't think it tries to disguise this or makes any apologies for the format, but beware of it before you mortgage the house to buy a copy. So what are you getting in the book? Well, I'll divide it mentally into three sections and an appendix. The first section is basics, general techniques and saw storage. The middle of the book is about specific types of saw, and the last section is about appliances and makers. Then there's the appendix of Holly's classic book, The Art of Saw Filing, which is reprinted here in its entirety. I'll talk about Holly's book in an upcoming episode, as it's free as an ebook, or if you want to get a print copy, you can get it for under $10. So if you're desperately keen to get your hands on that, hold on a week or two, and I'll take you through whether it's worth getting then. And, spoiler alert, my view on free books is that they're generally worth getting, even if it's for a cursory skim through. So let's start with the first section, which covers just under 50 pages of the basics. You'll find an article on why to use hand saws, a discussion on western and eastern saws, and help you understand the difference and similarities, and articles on sawtooth geometry, a view on saw plate thickness, and fit. The section ends up with some feedback on going for six months without a chop saw in the workshop. Typically these articles are a two-page spread, occasionally a bit longer, occasionally a bit shorter, but that's a typical duration. There are very few articles that are longer than, let's say, eight pages. There's often a picture that's relevant to the article, as well as the occasional sidebar where there's a more detailed investigation or explanation, if it's merited. So as an example, you might find a close-up of saw teeth and an explanation of terminology, or a picture of the saw in use, or a segue into whether a half-back saw is a good idea or not. There's usually a date for when the article was written, so in a section you may be able to trace the evolution of Chris's thinking, but the articles are generally in a logical reading order, from simple to complex, and this may mean that the chronology is not apparent, but it might be there if you look for it. I think the articles are best viewed as standalone vignettes, so unless there's an article with a specific topic that you're interested in, 
you're unlikely to find the detail consistent. And there's some repetition, which I guess is necessary to make sure that each article stands on its own. It was probably too big a task to expect that every redundant paragraph be removed or replaced, and in reading this it was something I noticed, but it's not so prevalent as to become an annoyance. One great article in the section is the one entitled The Mystery of Saw Teeth, which goes through pitch, rake, fleam, progressive filing, everything you need to know in one place, with some nice close-up photos to help you make sense of the terminology. It's an article published by Adam Cherubini way back in 2006, but I think it's as relevant as ever, and it's well written. If you're wondering whether you need a tapered saw plate, or whether filing your teeth on an increasing or decreasing pitch makes sense, this section is packed with essential information and all the terminology, both elementary and the obscure. On rereading this book for the podcast review, I was stuck by how much of this feels commonplace now, but I clearly remember at the time that the collection of articles made me feel comfortable with what all the YouTubers were talking about when it came to source selection and maintenance. I'm pretty sure that if you work hard enough, it's all covered somewhere in a blog post or an internet forum, so you don't need to buy the book to get the knowledge, but I did find it helpful and it is collated and presented in one place. For me, Personally, using a saw was a bit of a mystery when I started this hand tool thing, and the thought of filing a saw was terrifying. But by the end of this section you should have the courage and the knowledge, and perhaps even the inclination to take a file to your own saws. Although, it's probably a good idea to start on a rip hand saw, and not your premium dovetail saws. I'll be honest here, while I'm quite comfortable filing anything up to around 12 TPI, crosscut or rip, I haven't been comfortable with the very fine pitch saws and would probably send them off for sharpening if that was an option. However, there's a truism that's often stated, and that is that a badly sharpened saw is way better than a blunt saw. And if you're sticking to the basics, I'd virtually guarantee that you'll be better off giving this a go. I know it's been argued that you can get away without sharpening saws, because unlike planes or chisels, the sharpening interval is so much longer but I do find it nice to be able to take a handsaw and give it a sharpen when it's not cutting properly. You'll feel when it's getting blunt. And if you have a lot of work planned for it, say at the start of a project, it's well worth taking a few minutes to get it up to spec. I could talk about Ben Franklin in the woods at this point, but I'll let that moral and metaphor pass for now. You know what you should be doing. General Techniques and Source Storage is another set of around 20 articles and there's some good topics covered. There's a good article by Frank Claus and Dovetails and I'm pretty sure that this way of dividing a board into equal proportions by eye is now pretty much synonymous with the technique. This article illustrates my point though about the conception of the book. On my bookshelf I have another book from Popular Woodworking. It's called Furniture Fundamentals Casework. It's a $25 publication that is much easier to find than Handsaw's Essentials. If you turn to page 33, you're able to find the exact same article reprinted. The only difference is that in casework the picture of Frank is in colour. I'll say that again. You can get the exact same article in colour in casework as you can in black and white in Handsaw Essentials. I'm pretty sure that I've never seen a chapter of Ingenious Mechanics reprinted in the Anarchist tool chest. 
Look, I'm saying that a bit tongue-in-cheek. I guess I can't fault popular woodwork for the reprint. It's a good article, but I guess that ultimately the more of these books you own, the greater the overlap. That leaves a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Perhaps you'll enjoy it. Rules of Sawing, How to Saw Fast, and the 12-Cut Program are all good articles. The Nine Rules of Dovetails is another, although one that has some overlap with dovetailing, eye-tailing, and gut-tailing. But cheating at ten and shoulders was the one that you'd probably seen before. This is the article that suggests a first-class saw cut, or a knife wall, if you will, if you're in the UK. Good practical tips, scattered bit by bit in the chapter, but worth reading. In particular, this section suffered from some of the worst elements of the book, as there are quite a few one-page articles. Now once you've printed the title and the picture, even in a large coffee table book format, that doesn't leave a lot of space for meat in the articles. Some of them feel like they would have been a one-paragraph in a later-day Chris Shaw's book. But there's some fun in the book, like the suggestion that suggests a possible origin of the sawtill. It's a fun article, but it's followed straight away by a more serious article on how you should store your back saws efficiently. And with that, we're into the meat of the book. I think the middle section is the best part of the book, but admittedly, you have to be at least a little interested in the different makers and the internet topics of debate. I guess if you are looking for some solid advice, dare I say it, anarchist type advice, then you'll probably find this section more of a mismatch of ideas and overlap. I enjoyed it. It was fun to see the evolution of articles and the different saws and makers, and whether you can call a ripsaw, a carcass saw, etc. Each type of saw has some articles related to it, typically four or eight articles. So for example, Tenon Saw has the most enormous panel saw, Wenslov & Sons large tenor saw, Lee Nielsen's progressive pitch tenon saw, New tenon saw from Lee Nielsen, Lee Nielsen thin plate tenon saw, and some details on sash saws. The flush cut saw section has How tool tests begin, Discover flush cut saw techniques, Choosing a flush cut saw, and a final article, My saw. The last article, by the way, tells a great anecdote of why some tools look so good. It may just be that that antique that you found looking priceless on eBay was actually recovered from inside a house. This section has articles on panel saws, tenon saws, carcass saws, dovetail saws, Japanese saws, mitre boxes and saws, frame saws from bow saw to coping saw, fret saw to new concepts. They're all in there somewhere. There's articles on gen saws, flash cut saws, and then we're pretty much done and onto the appliance section of the book. I'm going to read a bit now from two articles in the bow saw section, which I hope will give you a feel for the spread of content in the section. An article from Willard Anderson from 2011, complete with historical investigation, a page of layouts for the saw, and a detailed article. The article spans eight pages, and I guess it must have been fantastic to first read this in a magazine. Let's listen to a few bits. Making a Shapely Saw This reproduction of a mid-19th century tool has exuberantly curved arms and traditionally tapered pins. 
The bow saw is an ancient tool and a member of a class of saws called frame saws, in which tension from the frame is designed to hold the blade taut. Also sometimes called a turning saw, the bow saw features a very narrow and thin blade with handles that turn in the frame. That make it particularly useful for cutting curves and fretwork. Because the blade is attached by two loose pins that are inserted in holes at each end of the blade, it is easy for a blade to be removed from the frame and slipped through a pilot hole in the stock, then remounted on the frame for cutting. Bow saws range in size from 6 inches, about the size of a modern coping saw, which is also a frame saw, to about 15 inches in overall length. The bow saw contrasts with other frame saws, such as a veneer and fellow saw, which feature wider blades fixed to the center of the frame and are typically used for ripping or cutting stock lengthwise. I spied the antique bow saw shown in the top right photo on the facing page at a tool sale, judged it too expensive to purchase, and then asked the owner to lend it to me so that I could make a reproduction. He generously gave me his consent. Here's the irony. The cost of reproducing this bow saw exceeded the original's price. However, what I got for my extra money was the invaluable lesson in the design and construction of the form. At this point, we're going to about half a page about the saw. After that, you'll get cutting lists and how to gather your materials, half page on handles and arms, and then detailed instructions and pictures about how to shape the arms, all lavishly illustrated. There's some advice on sizing the stretches and how you can go about that, and what would be typical woods, beech, boxhorn, cordishorn, and some excellent measured diagrams that would let you put the whole thing together. We have tips on how to cut the tenons, how to make the toggle mortise, how to shape it, and then how to make the windlass. There's a final conclusion about the finishing steps and what to do when you're storing the blade. A great article. Now a not so good article. It's an article by Chris from October 2012 and it's called A Real Contender. The New Concepts Coping Saw. I swore on a stack of mechanics exercises that I'd stop writing about coping saws. It's not healthy and I know that. But at Woodworking in America last weekend in Pasadena, I ran into Lee Marshall from New Concepts. He was holding a big red saw that was too big to be a fret saw. Yep, New Concepts is making a coping saw and the tool is only a few weeks away from being available to customers. At $149 it might be the most expensive coping saw on the market, but if it lives up to its potential, it might finally be the coping saw I've always wanted. I bought the saw at full retail and spent a couple of hours during the weekend messing around with it between teaching and attending classes. It weighs almost nothing thanks to its aluminium frame. The blade locking mechanism is just what you'd expect from new concepts. It's a cam lock and you can adjust the tension using a brass thumbscrew. The saw holds standard US coping saw blades which are 6 and 1 8 long or in the 6 inch neighborhood. Thanks to the cam lock it's pretty easy to change blades and rapidly tighten them up, no compressing the frame against your bench or your breastbone. Simply drop the pins into the saw blades holders and rotate the lever at the toe of the saw. Thanks to the highly engineered frame and the tensioning mechanism you can get the blades really taut. It's more like sawing with an unbendable wire than a floppy steel hot dog, which is typical of most saws. And the coup de grace of the saw is how you can rotate the blade and lock it in several positions. There are eight, I think. 
the saws in my checked-in luggage. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get the saw to lose its settings. Not with too tight curves, not with continuous use. As always, with the new tool designs, I have a concern that only time will answer. How will the saw hold up after hours of use in a boost? I could usually get about a year or so out of an Olsen coping saw, before it got ragged out and wouldn't tension the blade sufficiently to hold the blade setting. How will the new do? I have high hopes. Lee Marshall, Brian Meek and the rest of the new crew are passionate about their frame saw designs. I think they have the chops to finally solve the crappy coping saw crisis in which we now live. Christopher Shaw's October 2012 And that's it. That's the full article. And I guess in many ways that while it's a great page filler for a magazine, or a good blog post for that matter, it feels a bit superficial for a book. After the section on the specific types of saws, we have a section on appliances and makers. The appliance section felt a bit like the obligatory pop woodwork, says you must have a project section. Using a saw bench. Making and using saw horses. The traditional saw bench. Bench hooks. Gramercy split nut driver. Veritas dovetail saw guard. The season of loose nuts. Gramercy 14 inch saw vice. Joseph Moxon's double screw vice. Carved saw bench. New $5.87 saw bench. The Repos. Bench crafted Moxon vice. The Shangi. 19th century lube. Moxon from Philadelphia Furniture Workshop. Chain dry vices. Moxon's ingenious bench vice. Handsaw filed holder. That's a lot of articles, and it's also a lot of Moxon articles shotgunned all over the section. But I've probably flogged that horse to death by now. In the maker section, there's an interesting smattering of topics. I was not familiar with Andrew Lund before the book, and the article with questions for him was interesting. Likewise, I found the article on Benjamin Seaton saws fascinating. The American Kid? Well, as much as I like Bad Axe, this article felt like a paid editorial to me. And I really like Bad Axe. As I mentioned earlier, there's a complete reprint of Holly's Art of Saw Filing at the end of the book. I'm going to talk about that separately, as I believe there's absolutely no reason to pay for hand saw essentials, given that this ebook is freely available. Again, it's not particularly structured with its inclusion as an appendix, but it's a good publication and one that I believe deserves consideration in its own right. There you have it. A quick recap on the contents. 50 pages of basics, 40 pages of general techniques and source storage, 120 pages of specific saws, covering everything, panel, tenon, carcass, dovetail, Japanese, mitre, frame, gents, flash cut, you name it, it's in there. 30 pages of appliances, 13 pages of makers, and a reprint of the art of saw filing. So in conclusion, Handsaw Essentials is 258 pages long without the reprint of the art of saw filing by H.W. Holly, and it's a total of 312 pages if you include that reprint. It's written by Chris Schwartz and the popular woodworking crew, and you can find the book at any online store that deals in gold and other precious materials. As at March 2021, it frankly costs way too much for you to be serious about buying it. If you find a copy anywhere in the $35 mark, which was its original list price, 
to about $70. I'd suggest you'll get fair value for the book. Beyond that, I think the only reason to buy this book is to collect it, or to resell it at a profit, and use the profit as a deposit on a bad axe saw. I think the book is a good collection of saw articles from the archives, collated and narrated, and put together in a best-of collection, if you will. At the price you are likely to pay, I think you could probably order every back issue of Pop Woodworking that has an interesting saw article, and not only have some change, but you'd have the rest of all those magazines to read as well. I don't want to take away from the quality of the articles. Most are good, a few are outdated, but there are none that are bad or incorrect in my opinion. So the book is useful, and it's interesting. I'd give the book a 6 out of 10 in the category tools. If you can find it at list price, I'd maybe bump that to a 6.5. But if you're paying $200, I think you'll be disappointed. I really wish I had a good recommendation to give you as an alternate book on saws. And in fact, I reached out to the Lost Art folk the last time they had a call for questions. Here's my question, and Megan's response. Hi Megan, I've tried to read Grimshaw on saws without much success, and I know a while back Andrew Lund was working on a saw book, but it feels like the hand tool world really needs a solid book on saws. Do you have any plans to bring out a book covering that topic in the future? P.S. I've got Handsaw Essentials, the book printed on solid gold according to the second-hand market, but that's not really an accessible product for most buyers. All the best, Ray Hand Tool Book Review. Megan's response, alert January 2021. Someone else mentioned the price of handsaw essentials and I couldn't believe it, so I looked it up. Wow, I might have to sell my copy. In theory, LAP does have two books on saws coming out, Andrews and another one from Matt Chianchi, thesawright.com, but neither of them have a likely print date yet. There are lots of old saw catalogues available, and in addition to Grimshaw's, there's Holly, The Art of Saw Filing, the one reprinted in Handsaw Essentials, which I think has been digitized. I'm afraid I don't know of any good contemporary ones. Yet. Smiley face. I live in hope. So that's it for now, Woodworms. Remember, go saw something, anything, with any saw, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favorite book you'd like to suggest, or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. As always, I'd like to thank my Patreons, and if you want to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. <music>